One of the most amazing passages of scripture is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's called the kenosis passage. I'll explain what that means in a moment. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5, a very appropriate Christmas message, a message celebrating the birth of Jesus, explaining who he is. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be held on to to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Better translated, he emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him <clears throat> and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. An amazing passage, a rather unique passage, a wonderful passage, a Christological passage, a passage that tells us who Jesus is and what he did. In fact, I understand many feel that this was a early Christian hymn in the early days of the church. The Kenosis Passage. Now, why would we call it that? <clears throat> well, it's because of a Greek word, best translated, emptied. He emptied himself here in verse 7. Ekenosin, kenos. You see, it's part of the Greek word there. So it's the kenosis teaching, the self-emptying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you might ask, of what did he self-empty himself? Well, we find an answer to that if you go with me back to John chapter 17. This is the great prayer of Jesus, high priestly prayer. Here's what we find in verse 5, John 17, verse 5. <clears throat> so Jesus prayed this shortly before he died on the cross. <clears throat> and now, O Father, glorify you me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was the glory I had with you before the world was. Profound words. You see, that glory he emptied himself of as he became a person. He was virgin conceived, 
by a virgin, given birth by a virgin, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, the only one who could do that for all humanity, and then was bodily raised from the dead. So he emptied himself of his former glory. That's what he says there here in John 17, 5. But he desired to get it back, which he later would. So it was laid aside. He emptied, he vanityed himself, it can be translated as well. Probably emptied is the best translation. Think of what Jesus did when he did that at Kenosin. He vanityed himself. He emptied himself of that glory. (coughs) Another way it's expressed is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It speaks about the fact that he laid aside his riches. He was rich, but he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Another way of seeing how he emptied himself, how he vanityed himself for our sakes. So it's the kenosis passage. Perhaps that's a word that you've never heard before. I learned it in seminary, but I don't know if I've ever heard anybody speak it elsewhere. (laughs) But you see what it is. It's speaking of this marvelous thing that happened when Jesus laid aside his glory that he might later take it again. When he who was rich became poor. And in this passage, we see to what extent that went, an unbelievable extent. It's interesting, too, that this kenosis passage actually is set in the midst of instruction of how we should live our lives. Paul is very practical as he writes these inspired letters. He's not only concerned about great Christological truths, but he's concerned how those truths may apply to you and to me. And so we find in the context how that works out. Here's what it says in the first five verses, Philippians chapter two, beginning with verse one. If therefore there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any inner feelings and mercies, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He wants them to have a unity together in their love. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. That's quite a statement. Don't live because of argumentation, because of your own insistence on your way. Don't be seeking glory for yourself. But instead, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. What's it saying? I'm to consider you better than I am. You are to consider your neighbor as better than you are. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? 
we should be humble, have that kind of mind. Look not every man on his own things, but also every man on the things of others. Don't be totally preoccupied with yourself and what you're doing, but be concerned what your Christian neighbor is doing. Consider that person better than yourselves. Love that person, pray for that person. And we've seen how Jesus said by this, when we love each other as he loved us, everybody will know that we are Christians. So then it comes to this beginning statement of the Kenosis passage, verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so he goes on to describe the mind that was in Christ, his mindset. And it reflects back there to the first four verses. This matter of humility and of service and being a servant and working out God's will in one's life. So we see how that is true. And later on, at the end, we can see how it continues to be applied to us. This wonderful and unique passage, helping us to be humble, considering others, loving others, and like Christ, becoming a servant. So when it says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, Jesus, refers to what's just been said and refers to what is coming in this great self-emptying passage. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being, verse 6, in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be seized to be equal with God. Certainly that acknowledges not only that Jesus is a great man, not only that he's a great prophet and the Messiah, it acknowledges his deity. It acknowledges that he's Emmanuel, God with us, literally speaking. So we find very clearly in verse six that the deity, the Godhead of Jesus is proclaimed. He's equal with God. He was God. He is God. So even though this is the case, then it goes into this key verse, verse 7. But made himself of no reputation, but emptied himself, but vanityed himself, who made himself as if he were nothing, and took upon him the form of a servant, you remember when the disciples were arguing who was going to be the greatest? What did he do? He explained to them that the greatest is the one who serves the most, the one who is the most humble. That's the one who is greatest, certainly opposite to the way the world thinks today. So he emptied himself. He took on himself the form of a servant or could be translated a slave. We have so much ideas against slavery in these days that we may miss the fact that God wants us to be a servant, wants us to be a slave of the Lord Jesus. And in that, we find true freedom. That's a paradox, is it not? 
In being a slave to Jesus, we are truly freed, and the truth shall set us free. And so he became a servant. He said, he who serves, that he is the greatest. And made in the likeness of men. And so we celebrate the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. Imagine taking on a human body. What a step down that would be for God who is eternal and all-powerful spirit. For God in all his glory. And where was he born? Was he born in a regal palace? Not at all. He was born in a stable. He was born where there are animals and maybe not so nice smells. He was laid in a manger, not in a nice soft bed. That's the way he came, demonstrating his humility. And what a step down, a huge step down from the glory that he had in heaven now to the poverty of earth. Consider what a great change that is. It's almost incomprehensible. He was made in the likeness of men. He became a person, a literal person. He had flesh, he had bones, he had blood. He felt pain, he needed to sleep, needed to eat, had to deal with things as we do. And so he can understand our frailties and our problems. He was a man, a person. What a huge step downward. And being found in fashion as a man, it goes on verse 8, <clears throat> he humbled himself. That in itself was a great humiliation to become a person, but it didn't stop there. He humbled himself further, and he became obedient. Driving passion of Jesus' life was to do the will of his heavenly Father, was it not? Should it not also affect us the same way, to seek always to walk in the will of God, to die daily to self that we might live for Jesus? But his obedience didn't just go to the fact of being a servant and doing what God wanted him to do all along in his life. He became obedient to death. His servitude went that far. Not only living every day for the Lord, but eventually giving the greatest physical sacrifice possible, dying for us. And when you consider what that death entailed, how awful and how painful, how terrible it was, we realize the great humbleness that the Lord Jesus had to become incarnate, to take on a body, to live as a servant, to live as a slave to God, and finally the ultimate sacrifice physically, he died on the cross. And I suspect it was more than just physical. I believe there was a separation between him and the Father between whom there had never been a separation. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the sin of the world, that's why. That's why he had to die that terrible death. And in dying, he took our sin upon himself, willingly, as a servant. I remember hearing about some Mennonites. <clears throat> they were a Christian group out of Europe. Simon Menno was the founder of that denomination. And they loved God and they believed the Bible. And I understand that one or more of them at one time wanted to go to the Caribbean and work among slaves in the Caribbean area. And so what did they do so they could be accepted and really be with the slaves? I understand they sold themselves as slaves. They became slaves so they could minister among slaves. That's quite a thought when you really think about it. Someone that would do such a thing. But they loved the lost enough to do something like that. Jesus did too. He died for us and he became a slave for us. Death of the cross. That's significant. <clears throat> A cross is made out of wood, out of a tree. In the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us whoever is hanged, speaking of a tree, hanged on a tree, that person is cursed. There's a curse upon that person. In one of Paul's letters, he talks about that, that curse. Christ, you see, became a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3. He loved us that much. He went to that extent. He was cursed on our behalf. He took the just penalty of sin upon himself. What we deserved, he received. What we now receive when we repent and put our faith in him is forgiveness and eternal life and the Holy Spirit, and a promise of a new body, a glorified eternal body, <clears throat> and a promise of being with Jesus forever in the afterlife in heaven. So having said all that, <clears throat> it tells us what happened to Jesus, beginning in verse nine. Therefore, <clears throat> God also has highly exalted him. Not only has he exalted him, he's highly exalted him. Exalted Jesus. Helping answer this prayer for the glory that he once had. God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. There are some names in the world that are considered high leaders and revered people, but his name is the highest of all. It's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. I believe that includes even those who would not receive him 
At this point, they'll be forced to acknowledge him. And that every tongue, everyone, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Actually, that's found and taken from Isaiah. Perhaps you'll go with me back to Isaiah chapter 45. In Isaiah 45, we find beginning in verse 23. Finally found it here. After it says in verse 22, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord I have righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. But notice in verse 23, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. So you see, that's what he's referring to here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. But there's an interesting thing involved here that impresses me. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Indeed, he is Lord, he's Emmanuel, he's God. But it adds to the glory of God the Father. That is very interesting. One of the things that you will pick up if you study the Old Testament carefully, including the book of Deuteronomy, as in chapter 11, one of the things you'll discover that is very, very strongly presented that God does not tolerate worship of false gods. He was Jehovah God and had revealed himself as such to the people. People were making idols to other than he. They were acknowledging Baal and Moloch and other false gods. And God took an extremely dim view of that. In fact, I just recently read how that he wanted people stoned to death that would do such a thing, that would encourage others in a city and get the city to leave the true God and start worshiping the false gods. But notice it says that this is done to acknowledge Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so though God is very jealous of people worshiping him, which is for our own benefit as well, in this case, it's to the glory of God that we acknowledge who Jesus is. Have you ever thought of that? See, that's not a thing he's jealous of. The Father's not jealous of the Son. (laughs) Father and Son and Holy Spirit are one. And when we worship the Lord, we are worshiping 
God Almighty. In the Old Testament, he was revealed as Jehovah, as well as El or Elohim, and Adonai, and in other ways. In the New Testament, he's revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, both Old and New Testament highly emphasize the fact that God is one. So this is to the glory of God the Father that we acknowledge Jesus the Son as deity. I mentioned how that this kenosis passage is a part of instruction of how we should live our Christian lives. We pointed out in the beginning of the chapter, it teaches us humility, teaches us to esteem others better than themselves, teaches us to be concerned about their lives as well as our own lives. But then he goes on and makes further application after this passage. Verse 12, wherefore, my beloved, therefore, in the light of what I've just said about the incarnation of Jesus, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's a statement that has often been misunderstood. There are those who believe that's telling us work for our salvation. It doesn't say work for it, it says work it out. You see, once we have repented and put our faith in Jesus, we have salvation, we have deliverance. Now we are to live it out in our daily lives. That's what he's talking about. Work out in our lives what God has worked in in the rebirth experience, what God has put within us. Live it out. Work out your salvation. And that we are to do, it says, with fear and trembling. We don't think along that line usually too much anymore. And the Old Testament especially talks about fearing God. We like to translate that as reverence. And yes, I think that's correct, but also we cannot throw out the aspect of, of fear as well. In fear and reverence, take our true position before God and even says trembling here. <laughs> Be humble, acknowledge our true position before God, which is the essence, I believe, of meekness. But then it goes on in verse 13. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. As we work out this salvation, let God work out through our lives what he has worked in. He gets the credit. He's the one that gives us the determination, the will, the desire to live for him. This verse has been a help to me through the years. Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here in verse 13. If you feel kind of laggard in that respect, you can actually pray this. 
that God would work in you to will and to do, to desire and choose to do what he wants you to do, and then to do it. And then somewhat going back to the introductory passage here, verses 1 to 5, it says in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. <laughs> the church ought to, in one accord, be, be serving the Lord. There ought to be a unity. It doesn't mean we can't have different opinions, but it does mean that we should have a basic unity and love to each other. Even the Apostle Paul had a problem at one point with Barnabas <laughs> that he'd been a missionary with. But they still kept on serving the Lord and loving each other. So it says in verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine like lights in the world holding forth the word of life. And so that's one thing we're to do. We're to hold out God's truth, God's word. We're to share it with people. We're to live it. So you see how this marvelous passage of God laying aside his glory and becoming poor and in other ways suffering is used as a tremendous example telling us how we should live how what our attitude should be, how we should love one another as a church, how we too should involve ourselves in self-giving and in love and in servanthood and in holding out God's truth to all. Think of the birth of Jesus. Think of the great love. Think of the great example Jesus has set for us. May we have a prayer of dedication. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful, unique, <clears throat> amazing, great passage. Thank you that it tells us who Jesus is and the great extent to which he went that we might be saved, that we might be his spiritual children, that we might have not only victory in this life, but in the life to come. Lord, we would now have a moment of self-dedication. Amen.